0: Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Diller Teen Tikkun Olam Awards. Help shine a light on the next generation of inspiring young Jewish leaders. Each year, the Diller Teen Tikkun Olam Awards recognize 15 extraordinary Jewish teenagers from across the United States with an award of $36,000 to honor their initiatives to help change the world. You can nominate a teen today or they can apply directly by January 7th. Visit www.dillerteenawards.org unbound to learn more. That's www.dillerteenawards.org unbound. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 303. Bris means covenant, not circumcision. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson.
1: And I'm Lex Rofberg.
0: Before we get started, we just want to wish everybody a happy Hanukkah. Those of you who've purchased Judaism Unbound swag, we hope you've gotten them and are enjoying them. If you haven't purchased it yet, they're probably not going to get there in time for Hanukkah, but they also make fantastic New Year's presents, or Tu B'Shvat presents, or an early Passover present. Also, we like to say during Hanukkah every year that perhaps you might consider sharing some of your Hanukkah gelt, some of your Hanukkah gifts or money with us, because this is a time of year, the end of December, where a lot of people are thinking about their end of year giving. And if Judaism Unbound has been an important part of your life in the past year, if we've accompanied you through the pandemic Perhaps you might consider making a modest donation. You can do that at judaismunbound.com donate, and you can find there ways that you can make a one-time donation or even sign up for a monthly donation of maybe something like $5. We often put out there the idea of donating just $1 for each episode of Judaism Unbound. We put out about 52 episodes a year, so $50 or so is a wonderful donation, and signing up to give 4 or $5 a month automatically is really a great way to do that, and it gives us a good sense of of what reliable funding we have for the year ahead. And that really helps us plan and helps us make sure that we can keep doing what we're doing. So thank you so much. And now let's jump into this week's episode. This week, we're excited to be launching a new series of episodes looking at the question of circumcision. Now, we've been meaning to do these episodes for a while, but actually it turns out that fortunately, in terms of the topic getting some airtime and getting on people's minds, there was an article in The New Yorker not too long ago by Gary Steingart, the novelist, about his own experience with a circumcision that didn't go well. There are a lot of folks who believe that it's not the right thing to do to circumcise a baby before they're really able to make that decision on their own. And there are a lot of Jews, more than you would think, that have made an alternative decision. Our guests today are the founders of an organization called Bruchim, whose mission is to expand the numbers of Jewish organizations that are explicitly and outwardly welcoming Jews who have made a decision not to circumcise their children. Bruchim is developing an inclusion directory and also a concierge service to help people find communities that are welcoming and to help people find officiants that will welcome a new baby into the Jewish community in a different way. Our guests today are the founding executive board of Bruchim, and that board has already expanded substantially, Lisa Braver-Moss, Rebecca Wald, and Eliyahu Unger-Sargon. Lisa Braver-Moss is the president of Bruchim. She is an award-winning novelist and nonfiction writer who has explored Jewish trauma in her novels The Measure of His Grief and Shrug. She published an article called A Painful Case in Tikkun magazine in 1990, and it was one of the first long-form pieces to challenge the circumcision tradition from a Jewish perspective. Since then, she has written and lectured extensively on being both an active, engaged Jew and a vocal circumcision critic. Lisa Braver-Moss has co-published, together with our second guest, Rebecca Wald, a ritual guide called Celebrating Brit Shalom, the first and only book for Jewish parents wishing to hold alternative covenantal or bris or brit ceremonies, we'll talk about all that later, for welcoming babies who won't be circumcised. Rebecca Wald is the executive director of Bruchim. She is a lawyer by training who has worked as an attorney, a legal news reporter, and a media strategist. And in 2010, she launched Beyond the Briss, a Jewish voices website for those who question circumcision. And our third guest, the third member of the founding group, now a board member of Bruchim, is Eliyahu Ungar Sargon. He is a filmmaker with degrees from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and his first feature film was called Cut, Slicing Through the Myths of Circumcision. Eliyahu Ungar-Sargon has also produced a feature-length documentary called A People Without a Land, and he is the co-host of the Four Cubits podcast. Lisa Braver Moss, Rebecca Wald, Eliyahu Ungar-Sargon, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you.
2: Thank you so much.
3: Thanks, Dan. It's a pleasure to be sharing these rarefied airwaves with you.
0: (laughs) Well, Ellie, actually, I want to start with a comment about our history together, but actually want to direct my question to Lisa. But um, I was first introduced to this whole topic about 15 years ago. I was a new Hillel director, and we were trying to do something that would be kind of unexpected to say there's a new sheriff in town, there's new interesting things going on here. And one of my staff members was friends with you and said, I have a friend who's just finished a film and it's about circumcision, but it's kind of against it. And I was like, that sounds good. So let's do that. So And I learned a lot in those early days about a topic that I not really thought very much about, but at least I wanted to ask you, And doing some research here, I saw that as early as 1990. I mean, the story that I'm talking about is 2007, I think. As early as 1990, you had already written an article in Tikkun about this topic, and, and I'm wondering if if things were happening even earlier than that. So can you give us a little bit of the the history of this whole movement? I don't know if that's the right word, or this whole rethinking of the role of circumcision in Judaism?
2: Yes, thank you so much, Dan, and I'm just delighted to be here. Um, I have two grown sons. They were both born in the late 1980s, so that was when it was really on my mind. Um, They're both circumcised, which I agreed to reluctantly. I'd always had qualms about circumcision, but I I think I looked upon it as something almost transactional, the, the price of Jewish belonging. And also, as it turned out, the price of not having a major conflict with my husband. (laughs) So this is not quite the covenant that Genesis 17 describes. But anyway, I've learned a lot since then. And the more I've learned, the more convinced I am that circumcision is at best unnecessary and at worst quite harmful. It was not a positive or affirming way for me to enter into this daunting territory of motherhood. You know, traditions are meant to bring us together, but I, I didn't feel more Jewish because of circumcising, of circumcising my sons. I I didn't have the consolation that, oh, this is God's will, because I didn't believe it was God's will for me to circumcise, uh, and I don't believe it was God's will for me to circumcise. I certainly didn't circumcise with the required kavanah, with spiritual intent, and I I somehow couldn't let it all go. And began to immerse myself in the halakha about circumcision so that I could write about it. I think that was my way of insisting that my experience was and should be part of the Jewish conversation. I wanted to be included in today's parlance. So I began looking for arguments against circumcision that were consistent with Jewish law and Jewish thought. And interestingly, it was through this process that I started becoming much more engaged in Jewish life. I studied for an adult bat mitzvah I began having Shabbat gatherings. I began to really feel part of the community. And by the way, my husband has come to agree with me now about circumcision. And we have a new baby boy in the family, our first grandchild. And my son and daughter-in-law decided to welcome him with a Brit Shalom ceremony instead of circumcising. And for anybody that doesn't know, Brit Shalom means covenant of peace. And it's a ceremony specifically designed for non-circumcising Jewish families.
0: So I have a small question and then maybe a slightly bigger question. The small question is uh, to clarify, when you said, I wanted there to be a place for me in this conversation or some variation of that, did you mean, and I'm I'm sure the answer will be both, but I'm just curious, did you mean you as a, just a regular Jew, a non-rabbi, or did you mean you specifically as a woman or as a mother? What are you thinking about in terms of that place that you are trying to find for yourself in this conversation?
2: It is all of the above. Um, it, it, it had to do with really wanting to engage Jewishly and wanting to have a Jewish conversation because there are plenty of opportunities to have conversations about circumcision that are not Jewish. And that's a difficult territory, a difficult terrain, because there are issues specific to Judaism, um, which need to be talked about within Judaism. But there really wasn't a lot of dialogue at that time in Jewish life.
0: It just strikes me that Bene Lapi has famously said, I think on this show, but maybe in other conversations that she's had, that if you're drawing your paycheck from what she calls option one, which is the old way, then you're not going to go option three, which is what she talks about as a profoundly new way. And it just strikes me that this is a great example of a topic that... You can imagine that there are going to be male rabbis out there, and I know there are already, but that there would be that would say, hey, I don't know that we this is really something that we need to do. But so much of what you described, I mean, it's the way that I felt when when we were having the circumcision for my son. It wasn't that I had this strong objection. It was kind of like well, that didn't feel beautiful. You know, and my wife was exactly the same as you described it. You know, it was a, hor- a horrible experience, you know, in the sense of just feeling em- empathetic and terrible. And so you kind of think like part of the way that this hasn't really been analyzed in a deep way is because the people who are feeling bad about it are kind of not at the table to have the conversation. So That's right. you just say a little bit more about what you did in those early days and how you how you learnt, dug into it and how, what you found?
2: Yeah, I, um, I dug into it at the Jewish Community Library in San Francisco, where I became a regular. And I used to go in there and look at the, just, you know, look at the response of literature, look at the halacha. I had questions about causing pain to living creatures. I had, I had questions about um, even welcoming the stranger, which is in the holiness code it's mentioned, I think, 36 times in the Torah, the welcoming the stranger. There's a way in which the baby is kind of a stranger. We don't know the baby yet. And I kind of wanted to explore that. And so I I put all of these ideas together into an article for Tikkun Magazine. And that, that's, that's how I started. And then I began speaking about it and so on. But um but that's that's how I started. I wanted to articulate arguments as as I was saying before about that were that were consistent with Jewish thought and Jewish law. I really wanted to not be able to be dismissed as um you know overly emotional or this is a mother who's you know uh, unhappy or you know anything like that. Getting the tone right <laughs> was a big undertaking for me. I learned a lot,
1: yeah, yeah um. I think in this conversation, we're going to have a healthy amount of jumping between some of the ways that this issue has been confronted or approached in the, in the recent past. I mean, I really appreciate hearing you talk about this in the late eighties. Um, but for Eliyahu and Rebecca, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to hear your entry into this covenantal conversation, this rethinking of our covenantal rituals. And in particular, I want to jump to the present in the way that I think we might go back and forth throughout this conversation. I want to jump to it because there's a new project that the three of you have co-founded called Bruchim, which A is a cool name, and I'm not going to define it. I'm going to let you define it in English for for our listeners. But you're creating a project together, and it's not just the three of you. There's there's actually many others. You've already got quite a team pulled together. Um, and I'm curious to hear, like, clearly there were a set of steps between Lisa's s- stories that she just described. I love, by the way, that for you, confronting the problems that arose for you around circumcision actually was an entryway into Jewish experience, which is not how people tend to talk about it. But th- there were clearly some steps between that and, ah, it's 2021, there's a new organization that's coming together. Um Eliyahu and Rebecca, what happened next and and how are we doing now in terms of creating an organization whose purpose is to take Lisa's origin story and sort of channel it out and help other people see themselves in it?
4: My dad is a retired psychiatrist, and throughout his working years, he practiced a therapy that came out of the work of a Jewish physician um, and psychiatrist named Wilhelm Reich. And he was among the first to recognize that how we're treated as infants and young children has a lasting impact on us throughout our lives. Reich advocated for newborns uh, to be treated with kindness, um, and he spoke quite passionately against infant circumcision. So, um, you know, my personal story is that I was first introduced to the idea that circumcision wasn't such a good thing to do to a child um, from the books in my dad's office, and you know. Not long after my first child was born, I really felt compelled to bring this issue to the Jewish community. It felt wrong for me to quietly opt out and then um, do nothing to educate other Jewish people about what I perceived to be the harm. And I think I also really thought about what the Jewish future might look like when my son was grown, when he was a man um, with his own Jewish children who might well not be circumcised. So I felt a yearning to play a role in shaping that future. And I was also very curious to connect with other young Jewish parents who also weren't circumcising. So in 2005, um, around the time that blogs were really starting to take off and get popular, I started a blog called Beyond the Bris. And that's really um, how things got rolling for me. And I've been very fortunate to be able to have a diverse group of writers to share their perspectives. And in fact, that's how Lisa and I first connected um, was through Beyond the Briss. She had written her novel, The Measure of His Grief, and asked if I would um, be interested in reviewing that. And I did that back in 2011. and, And that's how we connected and that's the beginning of the story of of how we started working together
3: yeah my um approach to this issue comes from a slightly different place i uh come from an orthodox background and for me circumcision is one of those issues that really encapsulates that situation where i think secular humanist ethics come into conflict with the jewish tradition come head on into the jewish tradition and so it was the subject of my first feature-length documentary when I uh, graduated art school. Dan decided to have the world premiere at his University of Chicago Hillel, and I cherished those memories. But for me, this kind of perspective on it, coming from an Orthodox background, being actually very committed to my Jewish identity and to Jewish values, but also, you know, sort of really happy to engage in that struggle, in those points of friction... That's kind of uh, where I was coming at this issue from. And I met Rebecca and Lisa, I think for the first time in 2011. I think they came to my San Francisco uh, screening and they were on the panel and we got along famously. And what happened from my perspective in sort of my biography, my journey through this issue is... You know, the the intactivist, intactivist is a a portmanteau between intact and activist. And that's what anti-circumcision activists like to call themselves. It's kind of a positive rebranding. The intactivist world embraced me at first, and I made lots of great friends. uh, And some of those relationships remain to this day. But I I do have to say that um, in about the sort of 2015 to 2018 timeframe, there was a bit of a shift. And, you know, there was some much more vocal anti Semitism that was going on in some intactivist circles. And that was being tolerated. And the movement leaders were not being disciplined about it. Um, and I spoke out about it, of course, because that's me. And, uh, you know, fast forward to the founding of Ruchim, and I was in a place where I was very alienated from the anti-activist movement and was looking for a place both to talk about this issue in a way that I didn't feel was polluted by bigotry. It wasn't just anti Semitism that was being tolerated, there was also sort of racism and sexism and homophobia. Uh, and I wanted a, a specifically Jewish place to talk about this stuff. And so When over the pandemic, uh, Lisa and Rebecca approached me and said we have this idea for an organization and what we want to do is actually pivot away from talking about the ethics of circumcision and towards talking about including families who have already made this decision. I was like, I'm in. I was all in. I thought this was a great idea and we decided to call it bruchim uh, and bruchim in Hebrew literally means Mm. those who are blessed. But it is also part of the Hebrew phrase bruchim habayim, which means welcome in Hebrew. And so we thought that was a a good name and and that's our name, bruchim.
1: That's awesome. Okay, so I didn't make the connection to bruchim habayim. That's very, very cool. I I really want to sit with something that's come up in a few different ways, not just with circumcision, but with a lot of Jewish stuff, to use a not particularly fancy word. There's a notion that on this podcast, I think we try to combat in a bunch of ways. There's this notion that, ah, Judaism is made up of a set of rituals and texts and whatever. And so with, with circumcision, say like circumcision is maybe in quotes like the Jewish thing, such that if you don't like that thing, then you don't like a Jewish thing or you don't like Judaism. Especially if circumcision is tied to being sort of the core defining marker of Judaism, which some people might do and others might not. But like, I approach every Jewish ritual, every Jewish text, every Jewish everything differently, which is to say, I actually don't think that to oppose a particular Jewish text or a particular Jewish ritual is like un-Jewish. I think to oppose a particular Jewish or ritual is extremely Jewish. Like the, the the thing that wouldn't be Jewish is if you're just not relating to it at all. Um, and so I think it's actually not surprising in the least that for each of you in different ways, wrestling with circumcision has skyrocketed your involvement in Jewish projects and even made you co-founders of a Jewish organization, Ruchim. And so I'm curious to hear a little more from you about that. Not because I think our listeners out there don't get it. I actually think our listeners do get it, but I I want to, I want them to be able to see themselves in the story of, you know, having a problem with a Jewish story actually is a Jewish feeling to have.
4: I think that there's a commonly held belief that infant circumcision, um, because it's the one thing that virtually all Jews still do, it's what's holding us together as a people. I think that this is a logical fallacy. What follows is sort of this incorrect assumption that if a large enough segment of our population stops circumcising, we are essentially going to lose our peoplehood. And if you're somebody who believes this, then I think the idea of not circumcising becomes incredibly threatening. I'd like people who've been thinking along these lines to consider that circumcision may not in fact be the one thing that's holding us together. That for many of us, it's just something we do, something that's been part of our culture and our tradition, and that the Jewish people may very well be just fine, maybe even better when some of us stop. For a great many Jewish people, circumcision is actually preventing us from engaging more deeply as Jews. And There are a lot of ways that this can happen, but I'd like to mention one in particular, um, which is that for the very religious who believe this is a divine mitzvah and do this as an act of faith, uh, Brit Mila is the beginning. It's the starting point of their child's religious life. But, you know, for many other Jews, infant circumcision isn't the starting point. It's really the end. So if parents have a circumcision, either as part of a bris or um, in the hospital, a box gets checked in a single morning and the family sort of quickly moves on and parents can uh, feel good about themselves and say, I've done my duty as a as a good Jewish parent. And of course, since uh, infant circumcision also happens to be in line with the American Christian majority, then um it's all quite good from any social or religious angle. And in this situation, which probably applies to many American Jews, I think that circumcision can be holding us back from engaging more deeply with Jewish practice. And there's sort of another aspect to this, which is in a slightly different domain. For those who aren't very engaged, circumcision can very much feel like the be all and end all of Jewish identity. Because, you know, In many cases, it is. It's the only thing.
3: You know, Rebecca, Lisa and I have all been having conversations around circumcision for a long time. We're kind of uh, veterans of this conversation. And, you know, you get to see certain patterns emerge. And, uh, you know, in the Orthodox world where I've had a lot of conversations, you get a sort of two kinds of approaches. One is the kind of Kirov approach. Kiruv is this kind of orthodox concept of we don't want people kind of falling into secular identity. So we need to do things to persuade them to come back into the fold. So that's one approach. And the other approach is the sort of package deal, which is like a more angry approach, which is like Jewish law and Jewish observance is a package deal. You either take it all or you should leave it all. Uh, Those are, you know, in the orthodox world, that's kind of the way the responses vacillate back and forth. I think these are both terribly awful, horrendous ways (laughs) of reacting to people who are critical of circumcision. But what we've found in our... uh, We have these monthly Zoom meetings that started during the pandemic, and and they've been continuing, and they've been growing over time, which is also fascinating. What we found is that there are lots of Jews who are alienated from their Jewish identities and from Jewish communities because of how they feel about circumcision. And in this ironic twist, we've been functioning almost like that concept I was just describing of Kiruv, of bringing them back in to a <laughs> space that's completely Jewish, where they can feel comfortable questioning this tradition.
1: You channeled, the three of you and some others, the, the spirit of of questioning of upping your relationship to Judaism through that questioning of this circumcision ritual into the creation of Bruhim. And I'd love to hear where are we now? What is Bruhim?
4: Bruhim's mission is to advocate for Jews who don't follow the circumcision tradition, especially as they're going out and affirmatively seeking Jewish engagement. And what this really comes down to is helping to overcome the many barriers to involvement those who decide not to circumcise often run into things that um, prevent them from uh, being Jewishly involved. So, for example, parents may want to have an alternative bris for their child instead of a, a brit milah, a ritual circumcision, but they might not know where to go or if their rabbi approves of this and will officiate. And if they ask their rabbi and are told no, or they're given an unwanted lecture, the parents have now essentially outed themselves and things can be very uncomfortable, sometimes even impossible uh, going forward. Maybe parents want to send their diaper age child to a Jewish preschool, but they're not sure if the caregivers will be familiar with the appropriate care of the natural anatomy or accepting of their child's difference. For older children, depending upon the congregation, Sometimes there's a policy and this can be stated um, or maybe unstated that children who have not been circumcised cannot have the honor of a B'mitzvah. And when Jewish institutions have policies that aren't clear and open, parents can really live in a place of uncertainty, unsure of whether they'll be accepted or scolded or maybe even outed or expelled as sometimes happens. And this not knowing can um, really lead some to decide not to engage um, fully or at all. I'd like to mention one more thing, um, which is that Brahim isn't just about asking for um, clarity or for permission with regard to aliyah or be mitzvah or being able to find clergy who will officiate at a Brit Shalom, it's really recognizing that not all children, teens and adults in the community have had a circumcision or find this to be a joyful Jewish event or subject. And it's also not just about us asking, like, please include us. It's, you know, how do we still show up and how do we still engage even when our feelings aren't in line with the majority?
3: The Jewish community can't afford to exclude us. We're in we're in multiple global crises are going on right now. You can't afford to exclude people who are passionate, ethical, committed Jews from the community over something like this
1: because you need us. So I guess the question I'd ask is if somebody out there listening to this podcast is for the first time thinking through this set of questions around circumcision um, and considering whether it's alternative rituals for their children or just changing their own relationship. They might not even have children. What kinds of steps might somebody take to shift the terrain on this conversation so that in 10 years or 30 years or 50 years or 100 years, there isn't the same level of taboo and we're actually able to relate to this in a healthier way?
4: For those who decide to opt out, I think it's important not only to show up, but to self-advocate when you feel comfortable doing so and to have joyful alternative Brit ceremonies for babies and really just be full participants in Jewish life in the spaces where you wish to be. You know, no matter how the landscape shifts on this going forward, my sense is that there will be an ongoing need for Bruhim or for organizations like it, because thousands of years later, we're still talking about Britney law. And my hope is that thousands of years from now, we'll still be talking about Brit Shalom.
3: I think a lot of people don't know that Being an an arel in Jewish law, arel is a a Hebrew word. It's a technical term in Jewish law that means foreskinned or uncircumcised or intact. And uh, I think a lot of people feel like, you know, they have this misconception that if you are not a circumcised Jew, if you're a male who's uncircumcised, there's all sorts of things you can't do. It's just not true. It's just absolutely categorically untrue. Not only is it untrue, but according to, you know, and I I can demonstrate this from the the heart of the, the rabbinic tradition, you can't assume, based on the knowledge that a Jewish male is not circumcised, anything else about their Jewish practice. So when you find out about communities or rabbis who are excluding Jews and making, you know, publicly shaming them over this decision... They're actually not in line with traditional halacha. They're they're employing what some would call a meta halachic concept, which is just another word for politics. <laughs> and um, so you know, giving people the tools to understand these texts, actually engaging with the Jewish texts, uh, and using you know video and animation and music and sound design to give to 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 make it more accessible. I think you know people will be able to form their own challenges. They could go up to the rabbi and say, what you're saying to me is not in line with halacha." And here are the texts. Fostering that kind of an engagement can only have a positive impact on the Jewish community and the Jewish future.
2: That's one important thing about Bruchim is that we're seeing a different conversation already in the Jewish community because we're proposing this idea of including these families and including this in the converse, in the Jewish conversation it has shifted and we notice this in the press and in uh, in the interviews that we've done that somehow this is this is making it easier to talk about and that certainly is what will make more people think about this as an option
0: I'm still not sure you know how to fully embed certain things in the consciousness of American Jews for example there's so many people who go around and say, "Well, I'm I'm kind of Jewish, but I was never be mitzvah." You know, so I'm not really Jewish or something like that, right? You know, people have this concept that you're that the be mitzvah is somehow some thing that that it's more than a coming of age ceremony that marks a transition. They think it is the transition and that if you don't have one then you've never actually made that transition and you're not, you know, quote, a real Jew. Now, A lot of people know that that's wrong. What we learned from one of our interviews on the podcast was that the B mitzvah actually comes from demand from regular Jews who actually wanted something that was more analogous to what they saw in America around them, like a sweet 16, not the B mitzvah as a concept, but the B mitzvah as we know it, you know, as a major ceremony in synagogue where you have to read the Torah and you do these things. And yeah, there was in the old days, there would be just like a little, you would come up to the Torah, say a blessing and have some schnapps and that was it. And, Of course, even if you didn't do that, you were still fully a Jew. But the whole idea that you have to come up and do all these things and study your Torah and all that—that is uh, not only an innovation, but an innovation driven by the demands of regular people who just wanted to have big parties like their neighbors. And somehow that then boomeranged and made them feel, made the people who didn't do that end up feeling like they were not Jewish. Uh, And and it never came from the halakha in the first place, right? It never came from any rabbi in the first place. That's one kind of uh, situation. Here, even the most Orthodox, right? You look in the the Talmud and all the places where you find the halakha and you would actually find that, Just because you're uncircumcised doesn't mean that you're not a Jew. But there's layer upon layer of misconceptions. So, for example, even if the Talmud did say something like that, there's a million cases in the Talmud where they overturn Torah rules and Torah principles because something has changed in their society that makes those Torah principles no longer right. So uh, on another show that I do, we just spent 10 or 12 weeks studying the whole eye for an eye text and seeing that, you know, the rabbi said, we don't like that idea so much. Let's not do that anymore. I'm wondering whether you could give us some more of your senses of both conversations that you've had with regular Jews on the ground and also maybe with rabbis and maybe across the denominations, because I'm thinking about how, you know, there's two groups of people. There's people who actually are very much believers in a kind of old style Judaism. And and that might be one conversation and that's maybe a more difficult conversation. But I think about the huge numbers of people, probably most of our listeners out there, who don't really believe that there was a covenant between God and Abraham where there was a personal God who talked to a guy named Abraham and they made a deal and the deal was you do this, you know, you circumcise yourself and and God will protect you. I think they don't really believe that. They believe that that's a a story, a myth, a a, a an important story from our tradition, but they don't really believe that that happened. They don't really believe that God is like that. And so at the end of the day, my question for them is like, what do you think would happen if you didn't circumcise your child? Like, do you really think it's a violation of the covenant? You don't really believe in the covenant in that way. So I guess my question is, what is going on in the world of regular Jews out there who feel this intense pressure to circumcise their children, but at the end of the day, couldn't really tell you why?
2: I think that don't ask, don't tell, the way things are now plays a role there. We have a situation where rabbis, some rabbis that I've spoken to, I asked, uh, one of them in particular, I asked, have you ever done a Brit Shalom ceremony? And he looked at me and he said, I don't know. And I said, well, what what do you mean you don't know? And he said, well, I kind of suspected that they didn't circumcise the baby in the hospital, but I didn't ask. And that kind of, to me, that kind of perpetuates this idea that circumcision is monolithic and so on. And it's not don't ask don't tell is it, which is which was also invoked by a a well-known gay rabbi who one of the one of the first um, openly gay rabbis in the u s um, who said to me when I asked about, you know do you do you welcome these families, for example, into your preschool who who don't circumcise? And he said, um, it's don't ask, don't tell. And it, it, there was not a hint of irony in his response. It was just very matter of fact. It's, you know, sure, we don't we don't know. We don't check at the door. And to me, that uh, we don't check at the door is sort of misses the point. The point is, if someone's making this decision not to circumcise for ethical reasons or for for whatever reasons, they should feel comfortable being part of Jewish life. And Um, And not feel that they have something shameful that they need to hide, or not that you can really hide circumcision status in a way, anyway, because there are, if you go to Jewish preschool, there are diaper changes and toilet supervision and so on. But that this isn't something shameful. This isn't something we have to be secret about. It may be private, but it's not shameful,
0: I had a friend who has a child who's not circumcised and was very concerned about sending the child to Jewish summer camp, thinking that somehow they'll they'll be it'll be noticed and they'll be a, made fun of by the other kids or something bad will happen or maybe the camp would throw the kid out because the, you know they would somehow say that they're not Jewish enough or whatever. This was actually a a camp uh, connected to the conservative movement, so you know there was some reason for some concern because this is something that they actually. Uh, believe in and you know take seriously, etc. At the end of the day, when they they called the camp, the camp said, "Yeah, no problem. You know, we don't we don't check. These are young kids. They they tend not to be noticing very much anyway. And nowadays, kids tend to be much more private. So we have shower stalls with doors on them and everything. So you know, it's kind of like what I think is sort of connected to what you're saying, Lisa. It's like they actually were very cool about it, but because it wasn't like really publicized, it." didn 't really fully have the effect that even they were trying to have because people made a bunch of assumptions now it's a question about like how if you for example, are the conservative movement and you do believe that circumcision is an important Jewish law, like how do you both be welcoming and be be really have it really clear out there that people can participate and fully and if they 're not circumcised but at the same time sort of not diminish the idea that you still believe that this is an important part of Judaism.
3: I want to first say that had they known about Bruchim and had we been up and running at the time, we have something that we call a concierge service, where families who don't want to have that conversation can go through us and we can actually contact the institution. And in that way, we can serve those families. And also coming That's from... amazing.
1: An in- and just I'm noting to listeners that we're going to have a link to that in the show notes and use it if you need it.
3: Yeah, so our concierge service. Um, I I also wanted to just quickly talk about my sense of where things are right now. So we're having, you know, like I said, these monthly Zoom meetings that keep growing and we keep hearing more and more stories, some of which are very disturbing, actually. Much, much more disturbing than the, the story that Dan just related, you know, people being publicly shamed and, you know, 12 years later, a sibling of a boy who wasn't circumcised being punished by not being allowed to have a bat mitzvah in a synagogue really kind of out there things. You'll be hearing more of those stories from us as time goes on, because I think we, we feel very strongly that people need to hear about these things because it's, you know, there, there's a level at which, and this is true of many taboo subjects, but it's like, you know, well, what's the problem? There's no problem. It's not a problem. And, and there are problems uh, trust me. And you'll be hearing more about them on the rabbinic level. I'm seeing the same thing that I've seen ever since I started talking about this, which is people don't want to touch this issue with a 10-foot pole. And they're making a very, uh, what seems to me, obvious kind of political calculation that there's no upside to them engaging with this issue publicly, and there's a whole there's a whole lot of potential downsides. And I've been seeing that consistently. Uh, I've actually written about how that happened in the 19th century in the reform movement, right? There was a kind of, there was a minute where um, there was this group called the Friends of the Reform, and there was kind of uh, some momentum against circumcision. And because the Reform Movement was questioning all sorts of other things, this group tried to get them to question circumcision too, and they ended up failing ultimately. And the kind of status quo of let's not talk about this. We don't want to be criticized by the denominations that are further to the right of us. We don't want people questioning our Jewish identity, so we're going to double down on this right. Um, and I, I still, sadly, I'm still seeing that now we at Bruchim feel that, um, the more successful we are at, you know, shining a spotlight on this issue and talking about it publicly and without shame, we're hoping to put some pressure on rabbis. And um, we also have a rabbinic advisory council. And, and anyone who's listening, who's a rabbi who has no shame about this issue and is making a different political calculation, we'd love to welcome you to join our rabbinical advisory council.
0: So, uh... I think a lot of times when we have a subject like this, it tends to be like what we're against. I would love to talk a little bit about what we're for. So I want to talk a little bit and understand a little bit more about your vision and what you've created for Breed Shalom and how that can actually function as a new way of becoming a member of the Jewish community without regard to what's also happening surgically.
4: Well celebrating Brit Shalom we wrote it in 2015 and the landscape is really changing very quickly. What was so radical about celebrating Brit Shalom is that we intended it to be used by parents even if they couldn't find a willing officiant. There were very clear there are very clear instructions on how to perform this ceremony right down to the challah and the wine and the ceremonial chair and I think that it's very much in line with what we're doing at Bruhim because we were actively trying to solve the problem of inclusion back then with the book. Um, What we were really saying was, you know, here's everything soup to nuts that you need to do this for yourself if you have to. And even if your own Jewish community pushes you away, somebody somewhere wrote this book for you and wants you to be included in Jewish life. You know, maybe at some point, our book won't be so necessary because synagogues will just put right on the life cycles page of their website. You know, we offer you know birth ceremonies. We offer Brit Shalom for babies who won't be circumcised. But until that happens, until it's clear and open and known that these kinds of ceremonies are available to families, then the book still has relevance.
3: I also think it's it's really. It's important to note that there's a, a massive gender imbalance that happens around birth in the Jewish community because of milah. There's a kind of sense, for example, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with this, right? If, if a relative has a boy and there's going to be a bris, well, that's something that's worth flying in for. But if it's just sort of a simchat bat, then, you know, maybe, maybe we save on the airfare, right? And we think that's terrible. And I, you know, the more emphasis you put on Britney Law, the less important women are because they don't do it. And it's just sort of a shocking state of affairs. Um, not to mention the kind of discomfort that everyone has around the Britney Law. I I I can't tell you how many people. I know who have had children and and when they have girls they're like you know i'm so relieved or, or they'll, they'll confide in me privately you know i'm so relieved that we didn't have to go through this thing and what lisa and rebecca have crafted in their 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 book with their ceremonies and, it, and it's a beautiful beautiful series of ceremonies is an alternative where you can say we don't have to have that discomfort and we don't have to privilege male births over female births.
1: So I do want to jump in and uh, first off, I totally hear you that on that Eliyahu and I think it's such an important point. I do want to name that there, of course, are some women who have had brit milah because they're trans women um, and there are also trans men who haven't. I mean, part of what is making, I think, this issue come back into some conversations are the ways in which... Not only is it problematic in terms of how it has historically marginalized women, it's also problematic for all the reasons that like gender reveal parties say are problematic in that they assume, they assume an eternal gender of a child that is, you know, whatever they're assigned at birth. And so many people don't identify as adults. Um, or even as children with the identity that they were assigned as birth. So I, I'm not saying that to like reject what you just said, Eliyahu, but I just wanted to to add that into the conversation.
3: No, it's um, absolutely an important point. Thank you for making it. Also, circumcision deprives a potentially trans person of valuable tissue that could be used to reconstruct their sex organs later in life. So that's something to think about also.
1: So it's basically just bringing many different reasons why these quote unquote, I like hesitate to call them this alternative ceremonies, B'rit and and there's all these, there's a variety of them. Like, I actually want to start seeing them not as alternatives, but actually as just wonderful, more gender neutral kinds of ceremonies. But anywho, uh, the, the last question I have is about actually not just Jews. <laughs> um, my, my last question, because so often we look at Jewish history and we think everything is about what Jews or rabbis or whatever have decided to do. But really, if you look back at the story of Judaism over time, some of the most important things that have changed Judaism forever are, say, the printing press. That's not a Jewish thing. Printing press is invented, and that changes all of religion. That includes Jews. A bunch of things become written texts that were not previously written texts. All sorts of stuff happens. We've talked about that in other episodes. You know, we could even talk about the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple is an act done by non-Jews, two Jews, and that has an impact on what Judaism looks like for the next 2,000 years. And the reason I say all of that is that I believe, I can't prove this, I believe that the forces in the world that will have the biggest impact on this issue, on Brit Law, on circumcision, are actually not internal Jewish conversations about what is taboo and what isn't, but how broader society relates to circumcision across whatever religious background or non-religious background people have. And you might know more data than this about this than I do. The sense I get is that today is a different story than one or two generations ago in terms of the extent to which circumcision is just the norm across the board in American society. The sense I have, and please correct me if this is not true, the sense I have is that more people generally are asking questions about circumcision, not, not because they're Jews, but just because they're not sure about that practice generally. And that there might be trajectories whereby like, everybody starts circumcising less. And it turns out Jews are kind of part of everybody. So, Jews might start circumcising less. And so, I, I was curious to hear from you on that front, Is that right? Are there ways in which this conversation outside of just the Jewish world is shifting in ways that might have an impact on on the future of Judaism?
4: I think it's absolutely right. I think that circumcision is falling out of favor in the United States in particular. And there's an often quoted sentiment about the U.S. Supreme Court, and I think it sort of applies to this, which is that courts are not influenced by the weather of the day, but they're influenced by the climate of the era. And this also applies to the court of public opinion. The climate has certainly changed and is changing around the importance of preventing trauma during infancy. And I think the shift away from circumcision certainly has something to do with that around the concept of self-determination. And the climate is changing because of the ongoing advancement In human understanding of ourselves and our bodies. So, Jewish people in practice influence non Jewish people in practice, and vice versa. Which is influencing more than the other remains to be seen. I do think that people look to Jewish people. The general non Jewish population looks to uh, the Jewish world to see where it's headed. And I think that. It's important for the Jewish people to lead the way.
1: So we are about to round out the conversation. I was just curious as we do so, are there any particular closing notes you'd like to bring about Rimi Labri, Shalom, considerations for folks to bring into their thought process as they wrestle with this issue maybe for the first time or for however long they've been thinking about this set of questions?
3: What I would say is our issues are with infant circumcision right if a person chooses to have this done as an adult that's as far as i'm concerned beyond the scope of our concern um it's totally fine with me i have absolutely no problem with an adult making this decision and from a jewish ritual perspective i've made the argument that there might be benefit to that because the person would be consciously engaging in a mitzvah as opposed to having something done to them at an age where they're not fully aware of what's happening and I think that's, that's an important, it's a, it's just an important kind of point to make because there, there are situations that arise around circumcision that have to do with adults. And, um, you know, you could talk about, uh, circumcision for converts. I, I find that much less problematic, to be honest with you. Like, to me, it's a completely different, uh, ethical situation. If you decide as a denomination to say to someone, you know, you want to join us as an adult, then you have to make this sacrifice of a part of your body. Like... Would I make that decision? No. But like, I'm not super offended by that. Ethically, my sensibilities aren't pricked in the same way as, as thinking about doing this to an infant.
1: Thanks so much to all three of you for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. And you know, when I think back on the purpose of our podcast and the kinds of topics we hope to open up and just sort of get people's thoughts rolling, this is precisely the kind of conversation that we started up to create. So thanks for bringing a provocative, but really, I think, important and thoughtful conversation
2: to our podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here.
4: Thank you so much for having us. We are all listeners of the show, and the work that you're doing on Judaism Unbound is extremely important. So we feel very honored to have had this opportunity. Thank you.
3: We can't wait to hear your next episodes.
1: We are thrilled to hear that you can't wait for our next episode. Same here. We also can't wait for our next episodes. They're going to be very, very good. We hope that you'll listen next week to the second part of our deep dive into the topic of alternatives to circumcision. Uh, We've got another episode on this topic coming up. It is just as thoughtful as this one. We can't wait for you to hear it. And, uh, before we go to the different ways you can be in touch with us, uh, head to Bruchim's website. You can Google Bruchim, B-R-U-C-H-I-M. That'll get you there. You can also head to bruchim.online. That's B-R-U-C-H-I-M dot online, the whole word. And there you can find all sorts of good things. You can learn more about the organization. You can access the concierge service that was referenced in this episode if you are looking to be in touch with a Jewish organization but would like to remain anonymous related to the topic of circumcision or alternatives to circumcision. So head to that website. And of course, we also appreciate when you are in touch with us, Judaism Unbound, and there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook or Instagram or Twitter handles. All of those are at Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our website, judaismunbound.com, or you can always email us, dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. Lately, I don't know if it's related to Hanukkah time of the year or just, you know, enthusiasm. We've been getting some great emails. Keep them coming. We love hearing from listeners. So that's the different ways to be in touch with us. We, of course, also appreciate when you are able to support us financially, which you can do via judaismunbound.com slash donate on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift. And the last note of our episode is that support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.